0: On December 21st, 2020, August de los Reyes passed away due to complications with COVID-19 at the age of 50. Since learning about this, JP and I have been saddened to hear of his passing. August was a remarkable designer with an amazing intellect, and he put it to good work, making impact in not only the products for Microsoft, Pinterest, Google, and Verobank, but August changed the way these companies and teams approach their work. He was a champion of inclusive design.
1: We had the privilege of meeting and speaking with August in 2019 when we were in San Francisco. During our time together, August spoke of the importance of inclusive design and the type of legacy he wanted to leave behind for future generations. He believed that this approach to working could dramatically impact the way we live in a society. He imagined a world and a process that consciously merged technology, culture, and inclusion for future generations.
0: August spoke of living a life with no regrets. When This Is Design School started, the intention was to help support students and design practitioners to learn about the different paths and choices that made people the designers they are today. Few of the people we have talked to have had such a prolific career and impact as August de los Reyes.
1: We send our thoughts and condolences to his husband and family during this time of remembrance in honor and celebration of his legacy. We are reissuing our interview with August to continue to spread his vision. May his spark continue to inspire each of us to seek a life filled with passion, purpose, intention, and inclusion.
0: This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design.
1: On this final episode of Season 5, we talk with August de los Reyes, Chief Design Officer at Varo Money Incorporated in San Francisco, California. Delos Reyes's career transcends decades of technological shifts and advancements, and includes work with Microsoft, Google, Pinterest, and Philips. In our discussion, August reflects on his career to date, categorizing it in three decades: the how, the why, and the legacy. He speaks about the future and the importance of inclusive design, the legacy we might leave behind for future generations of designers to build upon and living a life of no regrets.
0: August las Reyes, thank you for joining on This is the Science School today. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of people that I've come across in my life that have known you and your name has come up so many times, and so I'm so excited to be talking to you today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. hmm
0: you're kind of like the godfather of all of our previous
1: guests, it seems like. <laughs> they're in some way, shape, or form, they are, they know you, they've worked with you, they've interacted with you, and when they hear they're like, yes, talk to August.
2: <laughs> oh, well, that's exciting. I don't, I don't know how I feel about godfather. <laughs> no one's asking me for favors. Uh, yeah. I thought that's very kind. Yeah. yeah.
1: I'd love to start off by um, hearing a little bit about uh, how did you get into design, and uh, where are you now with design?
2: Well, I would say that my answer is probably kind of boring, in the sense that I've always wanted to be a designer.
1: Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. When,
2: when I was a kid, I was pretty precocious at math, uh, but I was also uh, really strong at the fine arts, and uh, the whole thing just seemed to kind of, merged together, especially around architecture. Mm-hmm. And so um, I spent most of my childhood thinking that I would become an architect. And then I got to college and I saw how miserable all the architecture students were. <laughs> and so I kind of shifted to other design practices. Yeah. But I've been a designer for close to 30 years now. And I guess you could characterize my design journey into three phases. Uh, which are roughly a decade apiece, where uh, my first 10 years as a designer uh, seems to be motivated very typically uh, with other young designers, which is just to create cool, sexy stuff. And this kind of lined up with uh, where design was and where I was. Uh, in the early to mid-90s, that's how long ago it was. (laughs) I'm not Uh, too
1: far behind, I I know what you're talking
2: about, yeah. Yeah, and I I really thought that I would go into magazine publishing, uh, because I remember as as a kid I was just fascinated by album covers and magazine covers, and how so much had to be conveyed on one page in order to compel you to either pick up the magazine, look into it, and, and buy it. And as luck would have it, uh, after I finished undergrad, um, I landed an internship at the Atlantic Monthly uh, in Boston. And I was like, okay, I'm in it, and I'm setting up interviews at Condé Nast, and I'm ready to embrace uh, the world of magazines. And when I arrived at the Atlantic, they asked me uh, to join a special projects team. Uh, to look into this fun, special project called The Web, (laughs) (laughs) and I learned how to do HTML, and I also helped kind of transcode some of their content to the AOL platform and all things digital. Well, long story short, uh, um, I ended up uh, giving a presentation at Macworld Expo in Boston 1995, where uh, some of my college classmates and I had created a CD-ROM, which at that time was like the digital medium. Oh, yeah. 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 We had kind of figured out organically our work process and how to storyboard non-linearly and really embrace the idea of hypertext and hypermedia uh, and create this kind of compelling CD ROM. And after we gave that presentation in 95, we all got job offers and I ended up joining a startup and I left the notion of magazine publishing behind and stayed in technology the rest of my career. So that was kind of like the first decade. Mm-hmm. So I packed my, my packed up my bags and moved to the Netherlands, moved to Amsterdam and um, worked for Philips Design, which is the design arm of Philips Electronics. And um, I was there for three years, and this is how my time in the Netherlands unfolded. You're number one. I thought, my God, this is designer's paradise. Look at all this Helvetica. <laughs> like, look at all these posters and Gert uh, Dunbar and like the design systems. It was like crazy. and then. My second year out of the three was um, just getting really acclimated to the Dutch way of working. And so my third year I would characterize as all I want to do is go home, Mm -hmm. go back to the United States. And so um, at that time I'd uh, written a a design book for mobile devices. It's a terrible book, don't look it up. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I, was, I got a call from Microsoft, which kind of put me in a bit of a pickle because uh, this was a company that admittedly I had held with a bit of disdain. And I thought to myself, well, at least I'll be back in the United States. I could work there for a year or two and probably move on to somewhere more interesting. And that year or two ended up being 14 years. So yeah, I I think the Pacific Northwest was kind of best of both worlds, where I had the urgency of a typical American corporate culture uh, in Redmond, and uh, I wouldn't call it European, but there was something about the Pacific Northwest that felt very similar to uh, the vibe uh, that I found in Northern Europe. Uh, And uh, I just ended up staying there. But I think the second more compelling reason uh, about this kind of second decade of my career is what I learned from Philips and more so at Microsoft uh, was the scale and the impact that design could have. There is a story which um, reminds me of how that kind of impact could have both a positive or a negative outcome. So one of the uh, first house I was given when I joined Microsoft uh, was to help cobble together an icon, a speaker icon for MSN Messenger. Oh, uh, yeah, this is so you're yeah, getting the kind yeah. of time frame here, mm-hmm. and so it was uh, that
1: blue. Um,
2: yes, uh, the light shiny, blue, shiny. Yes, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Okay. had a very oh, ethereal that's... quality to it. It did. It did, mm-hmm. and. Um, I don't know if you recall the microphone icon on it, uh, but I had worked with an illustrator, and we threw the thing together literally in half an hour (laughs) and handed it off, thinking, oh, this will have to go through all sorts of testing and rigor. And the next week it was live (laughs) in Messenger. And I talked to my program manager, and I said, how many people are going to see this icon, it was one of those old-fashioned, old-timey yeah. uh, pill-shaped microphones, yeah. and I said, oh, about 35 million people a month, and I thought, oh, no, <laughs> whoops, well, I mean, yes and no, it's just yeah. that if there were that many people experiencing it, it could have been a bit more thoughtful, mm-hmm. And um, uh, but that was kind of my wake-up call of how what could seem as very small decisions on a day-to-day basis could impact literally millions of people Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I started thinking about uh, the how of design, how design can actually affect uh, people's moods, uh, how it generates emotion Mm -hmm. uh, on a very broad scale. So that's about uh, the second decade of my career. And I guess the third decade happened, uh, begun during my uh, time leading design at Xbox. So in 2013, uh, I landed my dream job at Microsoft, which was to lead design at Xbox. Up until then, I had really been fascinated with the idea of play, And the idea of emotion and how technology could generate emotions a whole range of emotions uh, uh, in people that interact with it whether it's through games or through other kinds of software and hardware and so uh, working at xbox seemed like the intersection between those interests and arguably a really cool product Mm -hmm. Uh, and about six months into my tenure at Xbox. Actually, the weekend when uh, we completed uh, the first draft of the entire design, um, I had an accident. I fell out of bed. Um, part of it was, at that time, I had learned that, uh, I read an article that said, sleep is the new status symbol. And I kind of have an obsessive personality. So I wanted to get the best possible sleep that I could. Mm-hmm. And I really geeked out on bedding and thread count and different strains of cotton. I wanted to have a different uh, comforter for each season of the year. And I gotten this, it was the beginning of summer, and I would gotten this very light, huge, overstuffed, down comforter. Mm -hmm. And what it did is it kind of uh, created um, a a misperception of how big my bed was. So I was falling back into the bed, I thought I was going to relax, and I actually fell and uh, hit my back on the rail of the bed. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening is I had a small fracture in my back. And because of other factors, including a misdiagnosis and some miscommunication, in the emergency room, um, I ended up paralyzed. Basically, I was uh, in the hospital, out of work for the next six months. Um, And uh, during that time, all I wanted to do was get back to work. And it just so happened uh, that um, going through rehabilitation and learning my new normal, uh, learning how to navigate the world in my wheelchair, uh, I ended up returning to work uh, on the eve of the launch of the Xbox One. So in a way, I kind of missed all the, the, the trials and tribulations of uh, engineering and marketing and program management and design, having trade-offs mm-hmm. to bring the product to market. But I, um, uh, I ended up coming back to work right when it arrived, and uh, it felt like a double celebration uh, for me. And while I was gone, during the six months that um, I was away from work, the entire company had gone through this massive reorg, this huge reorganization. There was a new CEO, and things were moving at the tectonic level. And when I returned to work, I also returned to a new boss. And what had happened is all the different heads of design for uh, the products in our division now all reported up. Uh, to a centralized design organization, so um, my peers were now the head of Windows, uh, the head of uh, Microsoft Store, the head of HoloLens, and so on. And one of the things that our new boss, Albert, uh, asked us to do was to come up with a design agenda. In other words, what are some common threads that all the products in our division could share? Uh, given the kind of breadth and impact uh, that we have uh, in everyday lives. And there were a lot of ideas that were being tossed around, but the one that I immediately glommed onto was the notion of accessibility. And one of my colleagues, one of my peers uh, at the time, her name is Kat Holmes. Um, uh, She and I uh, both kind of really embraced the notion of accessibility, and CAT introduced uh, an approach to accessibility called inclusive design. And so in a way, uh, CAT helped create the conceptual framework for inclusive design, and part of what I wanted to do in terms of accessibility and inclusion is apply it to Xbox uh, as soon as possible. And so um, that began uh, the kind of third phase of my design journey, uh, the one that uh, I'm on right now, and I would argue that this decade of my career is about the why. So the first was about the what, Mm -hmm. the second is about the how, now it's about the why. And um, what's interesting about this kind of third phase uh, of design is I'm really obsessed with leaving a bit of a design legacy. And I want to clarify something. When I say legacy, I don't mean this is the last thing I'll ever do. But but really, (laughs) it's a a, a kind of set of ideas that uh, I hope um, I could share Mm -hmm. that other designers can uh, pick up and build off of uh, to help um, realize the nobility of our profession.
1: Almost like uh, leaving a stamp. upon it uh what what is it that's going to be that mark uh upon uh design or the way that design will be perceived moving forward from
2: there yes yeah yes, precisely yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
1: and so where where are you now in relation to this process you said you're in the why what is your thinking about design and about legacy
2: um i found that in this kind of phase of my journey uh um i've been switching roles uh, more quickly than I have in the prior two, where in the second decade of design I pretty much had two employers, uh, and before that two maybe, mm-hmm. um, and now I've been uh, I, I've changed roles a couple of times. Um, when, when you have this kind of life-changing, life-threatening accident, you do start reflecting, and you start thinking about regrets. And uh, the thing that I've learned about my own experience was the things that I had come to regret were things that I hadn't tried or I hadn't done. And um, what I promised myself was uh, I wouldn't resort to regretting things that I hadn't tried. And so uh, when um, I was at Xbox, which arguably my original plan was to stay there until I retired, this would be a good place to leave a legacy. Um, When I got a call uh, to um, join a startup in the Bay Area, uh, one of the things that I'd always been interested in was coming to work in the Bay Area Hmm. um, and potentially leave a very arguably comfortable uh, existence in Seattle. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, and then come here to the land of extremes (laughs) and, uh, and, and try it out. But going back to this whole mantra of, like, no regrets, it's really like, well, let me give it a go. And so um, at the same time, uh, the whole notion of inclusive design seemed to have a bit of traction. Uh, And uh, I can get into the mechanics of inclusive design in a bit, but uh, what I found is I wanted to be a kind of Johnny Appleseed in spreading uh, this approach to uh, design and accessibility, because if you think about the first two phases in my career uh, about, well, making cool stuff uh, and then being able to make cool stuff at scale, uh, I think we're all well aware of the kind of scale that technology presents itself today, which is instant and ubiquitous. Uh, In other words, um, just making one icon and having a couple tens of million people view it, is nothing compared to the kind of uh, uh, instant and ubiquitous proliferation of ideas, concepts, beliefs uh, that we're finding now in the 21st century. Uh, So, uh, in kind of thinking that way, well, here's an opportunity uh, to help shift an approach to design that by its nature is ubiquitous, so why not design uh, for as inclusive an experience as possible? Uh, Because so many times uh, the biases and the opinions that are implicit in the experiences that we design are often perceived as exclusion or, well, even the word exclusive, it used to be that uh, having something uh, being designer in, in the sense that it's an adjective mm-hmm. also connoted that there was a sense of exclusivity. Mm-hmm. Designer sunglasses, designer clothes, you name it, yeah. that there was a sense of exclusion. And I think part of where we are today is um, as, as a profession, we need to turn that on its head uh, in the sense that... Um, the notion of exclusive design is an outdated notion because I don't think designers 100 years ago would ever imagined uh, the kind of scale and speed uh, that the design of technology would have today.
1: Mm-hmm. So guess as you are thinking now of the why as part of this third decade of your career, what are some of those things that you were thinking about? You mentioned legacy. Um, where are you now in all of this?
2: I'm at the point where I'm challenging the definition of accessibility. Uh, in other words, inclusive design is an approach. Universal design is an approach. Mm-hmm. And the desired outcome of both approaches is accessibility. And the kind of mental model that we have for accessibility has to do primarily with physical or cognitive abilities or ability differences. But when we think about accessibility or uh, another way to to think about it is who is excluded from uh, an experience? uh, The definition of accessibility can expand to other experiences in which certain groups Uh, are excluded for whatever reasons uh, beyond that of an ability difference or a cognitive difference. And that that can include gender, that can include socioeconomic uh, background, uh, that can include heritage, you name it. Mm -hmm. Um, And in thinking about how to build off of a method for including people of different abilities and experience, I discovered that this method can scale to other forms uh, of exclusion and the one that I've been obsessing about lately and why I find myself at my current employer uh, is this notion of financial inclusion. for the first time in my entire career, uh, I'm working at a company where the design problem I'm trying to solve is one that my mother understands easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, the face value, on face value, it's we're trying to design a bank, and we're trying to design a bank uh, for people who are typically excluded or exploited uh, by traditional banking practices. Interesting. Uh, yeah, one. Here, here's just one example. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, in 2017, uh, Americans paid over 34 billion dollars in overdraft fees. Wow. Yeah. Billion. Billion wow. with a B. Wow. And one can kind of interpolate or or or, or assume that the people who are paying these fees. Are probably the people who need that money the most. The most. Yeah. So that's just one example mm-hmm. of how to start thinking about what would a, a banking experience in the 21st century be like, and how could uh, it help democratize literally a day an everyday activity. Uh, One, that's also coupled with a bit of stigma, uh, because one, people don't like to talk about money, Mm -hmm. and two, if they do, there's almost imposter syndrome of not even having a kind of basic knowledge of personal finance. Uh, Coming here, my, my parents came here as immigrants, And part of the promise of living in the United States is anyone can succeed Mm -hmm. by hard work and wherewithal and tenacity.
1: That the American dream is possible. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But on the flip side of that is if you do not achieve this kind of very prescribed American dream, it's also your fault. Mm -hmm. By whatever reason. It doesn't even matter if you missed an insurance payment, and it's driven your family into bankruptcy. For some reason, there are certain ideologies that suggest it's all on you. Mm -hmm. I think part of that is perception that design can help address. So I know this sounds audacious, uh, but I would argue that the design team that I'm helping lead today uh, is helping to design a new American dream. That's so fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, in just the course of our lifetimes, we see these kind of uh, uh, assumptions or understood mores kind of shift. And I think the uh, the time is right to kind of help shift the mythology of the American dream from a focus on the what which is certain material things like a house and a car, to more of the how and the why, uh, which is really about creating uh, a state of mind. I think the New American Dream is really about how we experience Uh, not only our control over our our financial lives, but also to the human end goal of what all these activities within our financial lives try to realize, which is one, a sense of security, uh, two, a sense of freedom, and finally, three, uh, uh, a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So uh, I think the New American Dream is really about uh, instilling a sense of being um, around security, freedom, and satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And I think the beauty of those two, the kind of elegance of the solution, is that if one chooses to embrace the classic idea of the American dream—to own a house and a car and what have you—that still falls within the realm of this new American dream. Hmm. Just right. doesn't have to be that specific. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, that that specific point around like redefining happiness is interesting because I feel like the last few years I've been, even on a personal level, thinking about happiness as like this almost problematic term because if you overlap it into a lot of what we do with design is this idea of like simplicity and complexity, right? Mm -hmm. You can't have simplicity without complexity, otherwise you wouldn't know what simplicity is. That's the same thing with happiness. Like if we're constantly searching with happiness, even if we do achieve it, if there is no sadness or opposition to that, we would never know that we are in a state of happiness. So the idea of pursuing that indefinitely is kind of
2: weird. It's a fool's errand. (laughs) Like to to use the design terminology. It's a figure ground relationship. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so, but
0: changing that to something like satisfaction, it's something that you can earn out of that broad range of experience yes yeah should that be design's goal or like should design have a hand in that
1: like should we be teaching that
0: yeah well or like at what level do we do we get designers involved in that right I mean when you were talking about inclusive design Mm -hmm. right like more forward thinking programs is maybe beginning to be discussed I mean I think Kat's book has probably been a big driver in getting that into more people's hands and minds. But I guess how do we do it?
2: That is precisely the question. I think that is the challenge of uh, the design education faces in the coming century. Part of it is it's all well and good. uh, We understand the craft of design, Mm -hmm. uh, but to stop there is selling the power of design short. A question I often ask uh, um, colleagues and designer friends is, what is the unique contribution that design provides in the development of a product or service? And typical student responses tend to be, oh, we're problem solving, Mm -hmm. but I I have to reemphasize, the unique contribution that design has? Because arguably other functions are problem solvers. Mm -hmm. Other functions are also creative. Uh, What is the unique contribution that design provides? And my hypothesis, the one that I'm asserting, is that design provides what I call cultural equity Mm -hmm. in an experience. Uh, In other words, it provides the non-utilitarian and non-economic benefits of any given product or service. Uh, And it's not to say at the exclusion of of others, but this is the unique contribution uh, that design provides. In other words, what are the signals, uh, whether they're visual, auditory, experiential, that ties a given experience to the cultural context in which it's being experienced. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's part of part of the word design. Yeah, it's it's these are signals that actually make a given uh, uh, experience relevant to the time and place of the pe- person experiencing the design.
0: Before we started recording, we were talking about this conversation of um, like human and machine evolving over time together. In the state of like in the industrial era, you know, like humans began comparing themselves to machines and like doing tasks, and then um, you know later on, kind of we started doing that more and more with our brain and our cognitive abilities, and comparing that with that and. You mentioned right now that you felt we were on kind of this cusp, and I think we we've, we've seen it of like the um, machines being able to either read or be, at least begin to have some sort of emotional state or at least mimic it. So, right now, if we're we're talking about design being very much tied to kind of this emotion, what then if if machines can accomplish that, then how will that? Evolve
2: the design's role in the world oh um i think uh part of part of design's role evolves into creating uh um, positive emotion Mm -hmm. Uh, the the really at the end of the day uh, design is about creating a mood yeah there's there's one uh architect uh, I remember listening to her lecture. Her name escapes me, but she wrote a book called The Function of Ornament. And during her lecture, she suggested the, the role of architecture and arguably design in a broader sense was really just to create a mood. Mm-hmm. But at one end, uh, there were the engineers, and at the other end, there was like, uh, the civic representation, the, the government that created the, the building codes and whatnot. And kind of like at that intersection, that overlap between engineering and code uh, was the role of the designer. The, the, the intersection of those two rule systems actually produced a mood. Hmm. And the thing is, you could either produce a given mood explicitly or it could just be incidental. And I think what we found with uh, technology is more and more experiences are becoming commoditized. The the thing that distinguishes uh, one experience from an arguably very similar experience uh, is what kind of mental state does it leave you in. Mm -hmm. Really
1: fascinating to see how this all plays out, August. I'm I'm excited to see, especially since uh, you know I come from a small liberal arts school that I teach at, and we think about this holistic approach to design, um, not just a you know like you're a print designer, you're a web designer, you are a UX designer, but uh, you are a person who is designing for you are. Designing in this mode of, of what have you, and I never thought of it this way, but I think that that's definitely something that is, is I'm seeing mm-hmm. in in the field of uh, the way that we are teaching at least at uh, PLU. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think this is where the notion of service design, meaning design in service of yes blank. Comes in yeah. Yeah. where the blank is not marketing or program management, yeah. but uh, it's some not a sort salary. Human end goal, yeah, yeah. And I, that, that, that is my wish for the future of design education.
1: It'll be interesting to see the fourth decade now.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. We
1: usually end the podcast with a uh, recommendation list, and I was wondering, since we're in San Francisco with you, uh, if you have any. Recommendations of uh, things that we should see do while we're in town.
2: Okay, um, there are three okay. recommendations I that love I have. It. All right, uh, the first is just from a curious designer point of view. Uh, there is a nonprofit organization called the Lighthouse, uh, which is a nonprofit that helps the blind community, and there's a beautiful building on Market Street, I think it's Market and 8th, uh, where uh, it's open to the public and you can go in. And what's fascinating uh, about the lighthouse is that the aesthetics of the building uh, were designed to help people with low vision. So the choice of textures, the choice of lighting, the direction, every little detail mm-hmm. has been optimized uh, to help encourage good wayfinding for people with low vision, and for those of us uh, who have typical vision, it's a highly aesthetic building. So oh, you should go deadly. in. Okay. There, there's you. a whole story behind it. I think uh, some sort of professional athlete from Seattle left like a hundred something million mm-hmm. to this foundation, and wow. they created that. They designed this building. It's mm-hmm. and on the I think it's the ninth floor. There's a gift shop uh, full of everyday objects uh, for people with low vision uh, and includes like Rubik's cubes and board games and kitchen devices. So you could arguably do all of this stuff without looking at it. So uh, that was my first recommendation. Okay. Uh, The second one is more of a selfish one, which is I've been obsessed with Szechuan cooking and walks. And I learned in doing my research that one of the best places to buy a walk in North America is right here in San Francisco's Chinatown called The Walk Shop. <laughs> and I won't get into the finer points of how or what to buy, but uh, if, whatever you decide, you will find it there.
1: The walk Shop. Yeah, okay. The walk shop.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and the, the last one is... Um, In moving to San Francisco, I found that uh, the city has a kind of collective obsession with a particular pastry called the Queen Amon. And the best place to get a Queen Amon, arguably, is a shop called B Patisserie, Mm. um, which is a great place for coffee, too. Oh, okay. Uh, But if if you want to get a great Queen Amon... I recommend B. Patisserie. B. Patisserie,
0: okay. One recommendation I would ask for is um, what's something like you've read recently, whether an article or book or whatnot, that um, you felt made an impact on you that either others haven't read enough or should be more widely spread?
2: This is a bit of a confession. I haven't really read fiction in decades, and lately Mm -hmm. I've been reading... I've picked up reading fiction again, uh, especially Thornton Wilder. That aside, if we're we're going beyond reading, because you did say whatnot, one Mm -hmm. thing that I've been super obsessed with is the history of house music Mm. and then kind of looking at the history of it and how it was born out of the ashes of disco in the early 80s and the kind of social impact and social movements that informed it and this kind of, parallel movement happening in Europe and it's fascinating and I mean part of it too is like I learned that some of the drum machines uh, are kind of the de facto standards in both hip-hop and house music Uh, the 808 and the 909 uh, are the de facto standards because they were commercial failures and the market (laughs) was flooded with used 808s and 909 drum machines which were easily acquired. Hmm. Uh, And so, again, uh, it's a fascinating uh, story about uh, how failures and the death of disco and the end of movements actually spurned uh, something that's even more aesthetic and more joyful and more happy.
1: Any recommendations? I'm trying to get more into coffee. And I could use some thoughts on good ideas, good
2: or what have you. Well, the biggest thing that uh, anyone can do to markedly improve the quality of the cup of coffee is not so much in the beans or the method by which you brew, but in the way you grind your beans. So I would recommend... Buying a really good grinder. Really good grinder. Okay.
1: Well, I guess we greatly appreciate your time and uh, your insight. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Thank Thank you.
1: And that concludes year five of This is Design School.
0: Our podcast is recorded in the field where design happens.
1: The music for This Is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark.
0: You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com.
1: For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school.
0: We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter
1: at TIDSpodcast or join the Facebook page.
0: Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Stay safe,
1: stay healthy, and bye for now.